know, ultimately what we do as physicists, um, as scientists, is construct mathematical models to explain results of experiments and observations. But you want that mathematical model to be mathematically self-consistent, and you also want to satisfy certain basic requirements. And the basic requirements, you know, are consistent with the, the symmetries that are either assumed or observed. And throughout the 20th century, we were lucky. We were able to very rapidly uncover, you know, a variety of layers. We had a lot of experimental data that guided us and told us what the symmetries were. You look at the data, and there are the patterns. Welcome, everyone, to this cosmological episode of Into the Impossible with theoretical physicist Mark Kamiankowski. This episode gets personal. You'll learn how Professor Kamiankowski's insightful work inspired your host, Brian Keating, to embark on his scientific quest to reveal the secrets of the Big Bang, including cosmic inflation and the measuring of the primordial gravitational wave, a story told by Brian in his book, Losing the Nobel Prize. It's a journey that began with the BICEP experiment in Antarctica and is unfolding even now with the completion of the Simons Observatory in Chile. Has the quest for a symmetrical, unified theory gone too far? What are the next frontiers in cosmology? Stay tuned to find out. Please keep Into the Impossible in your feed by subscribing and following. For some extra credit, jump over to our YouTube channel at Dr. Brian Keating, that's D-R Brian Keating, and subscribe there too, where we just broke the 100,000 subscriber milestone. And let us know what you think of the show in the form of a review like this one. From Jonathan Millis. One of the most fascinating science podcasts out there. What sets it apart is the way it tackles some of the most complex and cutting-edge topics in science without dumbing them down for a popular audience. And now... Let's grapple with some of the biggest questions in physics in this cosmology episode of Into the Impossible with Mark Kamiankowski and your host, Brian Keating. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. Welcome, everybody, to another exciting, titillating Into the Impossible adventure with one of my longest-term friends. I can't call him an old friend. He's barely older than me. But he has been a mentor, an inspiration, and really set the tone for the field for many, many decades now, unbelievably. And uh, and that is Professor Mark Kamienkowski, who is the third guest who is a professor at Johns Hopkins University after Adam Reese and recently Sean Carroll. And so, and maybe, well, I don't know. You don't consider Mario Livio to still be there, right? He's, he's no longer... Affiliated in any way, is he? I think he's retired from Space Telescope. Yeah. So the Baltimore District, yeah. Uh, So it is Mark Kamienkowski, renowned cosmologist and theorist. And really, uh, the reason that I'm probably having this podcast, if it wasn't for him, we'll get into that in just a minute. Mark, how are you doing today in good old Baltimore? Pretty good. It's like uh, in the 60s here, which for us is a very big deal. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a nice day. Good day for a crab cake luncheon out there. I, I, yeah, I'm <laughs> suffering through 57 degrees here in San Diego. So, a rare day when it's warmer in February out there than it is here. Uh, so today we're going to talk. Uh, this episode is tentatively titled, "Mark, I should have told you beforehand." Does cosmology need a therapist? 
And it's because of all these tensions, anxieties, crises that cosmology is allegedly suffering from. Uh, but before we go into that one, uh, that uh, which will be the substance of this conversation, I wanted to uh, just bring my readers on an adventure. As you may know, if you've listened to the podcast before, seen it before, I always start off with authors and I ask them to judge books by their covers. Which is, you're never supposed to do that, but what else do you have to go on? So we're going to judge this book, uh, Mark. It's called Losing the Nobel Prize. You may have heard of it. Uh, uh -huh. There are many chapters dedicated to Mark Kaminkowski. But, um, but I talk about the time in 1999, before I met you, I knew of you, but you were still at Columbia at the time. <clears throat> and I was destined to meet you when you became a professor at Caltech and follow your career ever since. And in this particular vignette, I'm describing how uh, I spoke to you the day before the famous Bicep 2 press conference, which occurred, uh, now it's going to be, what, uh, nine years oh, ago? Ten. Oh, yeah, nine, nine, yeah. Yeah, nine okay. years ago so on, uh, on St. Patrick's Day 2014, where Mark was at the famous press conference, and I was not, and I remember you telling me on the phone that there'll be other press conferences for you, Brian. Uh, and, uh, but, but actually the time I want to go back to in the book is when I first encountered you. And really the reason that you were there at that press conference perhaps is because you really inspired the bicep series of experiments, um, indirectly or directly via a paper you wrote with a good friend of mine, as well as collaborator, Andrew Jaffe and Lemon Wang. Was he your grad student? Uh, Lemon was a postdoc. He was great. Yeah. I mean, he was a spectacular scientist. He was one of the inventors of quintessence when he was a grad student at the University of Pennsylvania. He came, we got him at Columbia because um, he had family reasons to want to be in New York City. Mm -hmm. um, and we wrote that paper. We wrote several others that um, people still read and pay attention to. Um, he was great. Yeah. But then he, um, the reasons that he had to, to come to New York City for a postdoc, were also reasons he wanted to remain in New York City. No. And um, it's not easy to like navigate an academic career when you're limiting yourself to one small, tiny little town. Yeah, New York has its charms. Uh, a lot of people have uh, have relocated from New York City, but uh, uh, but but we're not going to get into those details now. I want to discuss the paper that you guys wrote together, <clears throat> which was called the Polarization Pursuers Guide, or PPG. And for me, it became an, another version of an inspiring manuscript, like the version of Jay Pasikoff, the late, great, unfortunately, Jay passed away uh, just a couple of months ago. Uh, <clears throat> he wrote the Field Guide to the Stars and Planets with Donald Menzel at, at Harvard, so his one of his advisors. Uh, and that book inspired me when I was 12 years old to get my first refracting telescope and uh, become a, an astronomer of some renown, trying to follow in Galileo's footsteps. By the way, today's Galileo's birthday february 15th we're recording this happy birthday 486 years old he looks he looks great he looks great uh but anyway this paper that you wrote inspired me and the reason it was is because it was the first time i or anybody else really heard an inkling that one could measure the b mode polarization of the cmb and do it experimentally uh, and the extrapolation which i drew from the paper was that you presented a series of graphs, and we'll show those in the B-roll here, um, but you presented a series of diagrams, and those diagrams presented how well could a given-sized aperture telescope constrain the amount of inflationary gravitational wave energy 
or the amplitude of primordial gravitational lines. And I saw that it was almost independent of aperture size. And that really lit my fire because uh, as, as many people may or may not know, a telescope's cost scales basically with the cube of its diameter, some high power of the aperture. So you were basically telling me at that time and anyone else who would listen that a 10 meter diameter telescope was not necessary to detect the primordial gravitational wave background. And that really inspired me. And I, I, I stopped working on the projects I was working on for Sarah Church. And she promptly fired me, which then brought me down to work <laughs> with uh, your friend and, and my mentor, Andrew Lamb. So you were at Stanford before? Yeah, I was at Stanford in 99. Miserable, hated working on living in Palo Alto on a postdoc salary of $32,000 during the dot-com boom when you know uh, Google was getting founded down the street. I had no money, no prospects. Uh, really wasn't interested in the science that, you know, Sarah had, you know, she had, she did nothing wrong, but, but I was so distracted by some of the ideas that I'd read about in your paper and others and really became infatuated that I wanted to do this. And I wanted to study the B mode polarization of the microwave background. And that later became the uh, impetus for the bicep experiment. So bicep, we can have actually here is a replica of the bicep lens that we use the primary aperture lens for one of the bicep prototypes that we built back at Caltech where I was a postdoc and you were a professor. And this telescope was very cheap. By I mean, we got started with a $1 million, uh, you know, grant from president David Baltimore. I think that was one of the nimble features of the, uh, of a small institution like Caltech. In, in addition to teaching people how to weld and do technical college things, Caltech's very nimble. I don't know if UCSD or Johns Hopkins is like that, but at any rate, um, that paper inspired me to go on this adventure. And, and since then, we've, we've had four generations of BICEP, and now we've, uh, we're in the third generation of, of uh, the Simons Array and Polar Bear, uh, and it's very similar. It's on a refracting telescope, uh, but uh, your university co-member, colleagues, class, and, and then, of course, uh, Simons Observatory, which I lead with my friends at Berkeley and Princeton and, and UPenn and Chicago. So anyway, Mark. I want to thank you for that, but bring us back to that to that time. Did you realize the implications when you guys were working on this paper? Were you m mainly trying to motivate why it would be interesting or how one could study it? Or did you really want to parse the differences between a large, expensive telescope and a small, you know, inex relatively inexpensive telescope? Um, I think that what happened there, if I remember, is that... Um, there was sort of this mindset at the time, um, you know, the, you know, the, the big CMB experiment at that time, the most successful one was Kobe. And, you know, we all knew Kobe. We understood how it worked. We looked understood the analysis worked. And, um, you know, I was a grad, sorry, a postdoc in the mid 90s, early 90s. And I started getting interested in the CMB and I started, you know, and, and starting to work on the CMB I went through a whole bunch of calculations. I gave myself exercises so I could sort of understand what was going on. And, um, you know, Kobe worked by scanning the entire sky. And we sort of had this mindset that a cosmic microwave background experiment to be successful had to scan the entire sky. Um, and it turns out that Kobe was the best um, strategy, that full sky strategy was the best strategy for the signal that they were trying to detect, which was the temperature fluctuations. Um, 
And if you look at the, you know, the power spectrum for CMB temperature fluctuations, it peaks at large angular scales, and um, the fluctuations get become much smaller amplitude at small angular scales. And so, I, you know, I wasn't around when they designed COBE, but in retrospect, that was the best way to actually discover what they wanted and ultimately discovered. Um, but then, you know, in the mid-90s, I and Arthur and Albert Stevens and Urosh and Matthias and other people um, were writing papers about the polarization. And one of the things that was striking about the polarization is that the fluctuations in the polarization um, are larger on small angular scales than on large angular scales. And so we did a straightforward calculation of the paper that you're thinking about, which was essentially just a generalization of like the kinds of exercises that I and other people had given ourselves, you know, to learn about how these measurements are done. But um, it was pretty clear just looking at the polarization power spectrum that since it peaks at smaller angular scales, you don't need the full sky. And you don't need, it also not only peaks on smaller angular scales, sort of peaks at middling angular scales. We also didn't need, you know, the extremely high angular resolution that we were pushing for um, in our efforts to, like, um, you know, uh, advocate for experiments like WMAP to measure cosmic, to measure um, cosmological parameters. So it was a pretty straightforward exercise. The conclusions in that paper probably could have been reached just by looking at the polarization power spectrum without actually any detailed calculation. Um, but I think putting in that the intent of putting in that paper was to like draw attention to this. Um, as you know, I'm not an observer. I was even less of an observer back then, but I did know enough to know that you don't need a big telescope to do, uh, you don't need particularly good angular resolution. And I also knew enough that it's easier to point a telescope for a small part of the sky than the entire sky. Um, I, remember yeah, I, think, I think that we, I think we took the title of that paper from, a book that had been written called the Higgs Hunter's Guide. Yeah. Um, by a four um, article theorists, Gunyan, Haber, Sally Dawson, and I'm going to get in trouble. Kane. I think. Yeah. I think it was Gordy. Yeah. yeah I have so that, that's that's one of those books you, that you buy and you never read. Uh, but cause I, I thought, I thought it was slightly more practical to build something to look for gravitational waves, you know, on a tabletop size than look for the Higgs. Uh, but we'll, we'll get to the Higgs and we'll get to other, other challenges and crises in cosmology. But just a quick pause to ask you for a small favor while my thumb is occupied with old Albert on it. Yours is presumably freed up to leave a thumbs up on this video. It really helps me a lot with a good old fashioned YouTube algorithm. Thanks a lot. Now back to the video. But, but I guess the question I had is, you know, back then you were also responsible for the formalism, which I think is both more, you know, poetic. Uh, I fight with Matthias about this all the time. Uh, you know, EB versus grad curl. I think it's more evocative, more descriptive to use the description you and Arthur and uh, Stebbins came up with. But but the kind of milieu, if I remember from middle of my graduate school in the mid 90s, late 90s, that was also concomitant with looking for, you know, cosmic shear or, or looking for galaxy shear and correlations, which I want to ask you about that because I don't really hear so much about, I mean, we hear about gravitational lensing and even in the CMB, but these were in like kind of optical surveys, if I recall correctly, where, where you first really, and, and maybe it was Stebbins, you know, who had with Nick Kaiser, if I recall correctly, and others that really started to look into these, you know, grad curl type phenomena. But in contradistinction to the CMB, I almost never hear about those types of measurements. What, what happened there? Did we just solve that field or, or did it get superseded in some way? You mean um, reclensing of galaxies? 
Yeah, just optical, you know, surveys of, of weak lensing and in the formalism oh. of grad Carl, you know, and presenting it oh, in that that's way. Like, that's, people do that. It's huge. It's um it's one of the cornerstones of, you know, the DES dark energy survey analyses, cosmological analyses. They have galaxy clustering, they've got baryon acoustic oscillations, um, but they also have weak lensing. So that's huge. Um, but are they using the drag curl formalism or are they like how, how what is the kind of metric or rubric that they're using because i remember back then uh, it was all geez you know grad and curl so they're looking for they're using weak lensing to measure the mass distribution and for them it's just the grad or the e-mode um they don't really need the curl there's no reason they don't really need the curl for anything um or the b-mode um you can use it, um, you can measure it with a, the experiment, and I think they do, um, is a null test. Mm. <clears throat> it's a very good null test, because it's the, you know, the whole analysis pipeline that you, that you develop to, to measure the E-modes, um, you can just change essentially one line of the code, just rotate everything by 45 degrees, and then <clears throat> do the same measurement that gives you the B-mode or the curl component. And um, if you're doing everything right, that should be zero. Right. So it's, a, it's an important um, so they, yeah. So they do, they use it, but they don't use the language of E versus B because it's not really, um, they just have lensing. <laughs> now that's tracing matter distribution. I mean, it, what, what, to what does that owe itself to? Is it, is it to dark matter at low Z? Because obviously, you know, Planck and other CMB act and SPT and, and so forth and polar bear can measure, you know, gravitational lensing at high redshift and, trace things along the line of sight, and there's a redshift kernel that ha is involved. But what is the, if you had to rank kind of the DES and other surveys, you know, kind of motive force or motivation for them, I mean, what, to what extent does weak lensing, you know, hold a candle, no pun intended, to things like baron acoustic oscillations and other, other phenomena? I think it's right up there. I mean, it's not better or worse. It's different. Um, if you look uh there's been a lot of attention to this sigma eight tension in recent yeah. years, and you can look, um, you know, there, you can look at the papers, or you can look at the summary plots that people show in conferences. And there's a whole bunch of different data points, measurements of the amplitude of clustering in the current current or recent universe, and some of those come from weak lensing, some of them come from galaxy clustering, um, and they're all falling more or less in this a little bit low compared to what you'd expect from the CMB. And they all have comparable error bars. So, yeah, weak lensing of galaxies is, I think, right in there. It's one of the, the cornerstone, you know, physical cosmology measurements that people are doing now. So we've had a lot of guests on recently talking about alternatives to things like inflation, to things like Lorentz invariance as a, as a you know, conserved symmetry. We'll get to those. But the one I want to her to first in our list of crises, which goes along, you know, hand in glove, perhaps with, uh, you know, weak lensing that we just discussed, uh, are alternatives to particulate dark matter. Um, and those are things like MOND. Uh, so I've had on Stacy McGaw from my alma mater, undergrad alma mater, Case Western, and also from uh, Mordecai Milgram uh, from, uh, from, uh, from Israel. So I've had both of them on to discuss their, their, and it seems to me, and maybe I'm wrong, but there's almost um, 
seems to be like a renaissance now with with people looking at Mond. Uh, but of course, you know, you you're not bound by any, you know, uh, desire to play politics. You'll tell me what you really think. Uh, how seriously <laughs> should I take Mond? I'm just a simple, humble, experimental cosmologist, Mark. So break it down for me and my audience. What do you as a National Academy, you know, the, one of the most respected cosmologists alive. Uh, what do you make of, of Mond on a, on a practical basis? Has it cleared any hurdles that would cause you to say, put your money or the NSF's money where their mouths are and put a grad student or a postdoc, sick them on a problem? Um, honestly, I don't like Mond. I don't know whether I like it or not. I don't pay attention to it. And I'm, I'm going to say something that I often say in, you know, in small groups <laughs> that aren't uh, <laughs> Don't worry, there's being, only 100,000 people subscribed to this <laughs> Don't worry. I just, I don't think it's good science. Um, so Stacy does these analyses that I think are interesting. Um, you know, Stacy's got a, a whole bunch of galaxies for which he has well-measured rotation curves, and then he fits, you know, semi-analytic curves to those data. And I think that um, that's interesting, and I think um, a it's a it's a useful piece of information or a set of a data set that um, theories for galaxy formation and galaxy structure should, in principle, be able to account for. Mm -hmm. um, I don't, however, like the idea of Mond as an alternative to dark matter, and the reason is it's just not the theoretical. Physics. Um, <clears throat> we've been developing, you know, our modern model for physics um, for a long, long time. It started, you know, quantitative descriptions of nature started with Isaac Newton. They were developed further by assorted mathematicians and physicists through several centuries. Um, you know, Einstein <clears throat> then took things further in terms of a relativistic description, and it didn't. So, you know, it didn't rule out or replace Newtonian gravity, but expanded the realm of applicability and clarified the realm of applicability. Uh -huh. And then, you know, the big one was we found quantum mechanics. We found that there's, you know, a certain mathematical framework that describes the behavior of fundamental particles. Um, now, the mathematics that underlies all these things um, is complicated, but it's always motivated by the most simple physical principles. And the most simple ideas that we have in nature, the most elementary things that you can think of, are firmly encoded in those mathematical theories. So, you know, one thing that we start with when we develop a mathematical model for physics, you know, the workings of the universe, is we say it should be universal. We shouldn't have one theory that works on Earth, another one that works on Mars, one that works on Tuesday, and one that works on Thursdays. Um, we should have one physical theory <clears throat> that explains phenomena everywhere and at all times. And so that notion of the invariance of the laws of physics under time translation and spatial translations gives rise to conservation of momentum and energy. Um, we can then generalize those to the relativistic context that um, Einstein brought us to. And again, that gives us additional symmetries of the laws of physics, further constraints on the mathematical structure. And in quantum mechanics, we have internal, we have rotational symmetries, spatial translation symmetries, you know, all these very simple common sense 
very basic common sense. The laws of physics shouldn't depend on whether I look in that direction or that direction. That gives us conservation of angular momentum. And um, Mon just doesn't have these symmetries built into it. Um, the mathematical sure. structure is sort of, we'll try what works here, and over here we'll try something else. And um, it just, uh, I don't like it. So it's, uh, it's, it's not only philosophical, it's not only sort of, uh, you know, <clears throat> based on, on philosophy, but, you know, as they say, the, the gustibus es non es disputandum, you know, you can't really account for taste. But just to push back with my trademark love and respect for you, um, aren't the most interesting things in physics the result of broken symmetries, not not perfectly? Res- I mean, if symmetry was absolute, you oh, know, yes, 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 right? that's, a, that's a very good point, but... Um, the broken symmetries that we have in nature um, are manifestations of situations. The, the, the underlying symmetry is still built into the mathematics. So, for example, the electroweak standard model, um, the theory has built into it certain internal symmetries that we refer to as SU3 cross SU2 cross U1. The SU2 cross U1 symmetry, the electroweak standard model, is spontaneously broken. Um, so when we discuss the low energy, you know, observational um, phenomenological consequences of the theory, um, they are in this broken symmetry phase, <clears throat> but the underlying symmetry still um, is apparent in the mathematical structure. Um, I mean, another example is when we look at, um, you know, condensed matter physics. So, in, in, you know, according to what I said, the laws of physics should be invariant under translations. Um, but when you look at a, a crystal, you know, in condensed matter physics, you've got a, a regular periodic array of atoms. And so you no longer have, um, you know, spatial translation symmetry um, unless it's by that certain lattice separation. Um, but still, the, the, the underlying physical theory is still invariant under spatial translations, but sub- subject to the, you know, but describe the particular physical configuration that you're looking at. So even when we have spontaneously broken symmetries um, in nature, the underlying symmetry is still built into the... It's still respected. I see. So what about... uh, I was speaking on a podcast with my colleague, Dan Green, uh, who uh, is, you know, renowned in astroparticle physics and um, kind of making a slow conversion from, you know, string theory as a, as a you know, daily practice or, you know, the daily homage to string theory and, and really getting into observational signatures for... for experiments like the Simons Observatory. <clears throat> but, um, you know, I asked him yesterday, I'll ask you later, you know, what are some of the most, you know, foundational things that you've learned or facts about the universe that you'd want to brag about and put on a monument, a time capsule to last a billion years. We'll get to that for you later. But he, he was basically saying, like, effective field theory, you know, is is extremely, is extremely uh, productive. And, and it's, it's led to multiple discoveries of high energy physics and, and so forth. But um, but it made me think, you know, of this of this fact that we we hear things from people like Nima uh, up the road from you at Princeton and, and others that, you know, space time is doomed and and uh, there's, there's really nothing. You know, I think I think, you know, I can't really repeat what he said, but because uh, it's a PG. No, he he, he hopefully will come on the <laughs> podcast. Or something. But but, you know, essentially that, you know, it's it's it's. It's only we're only seeing kind of a, a shadow of, of of some low energy limit of some higher energy effective field. So it made me think: What is so crazy about thinking about Newtonian dynamics? I mean, why is that so sacrosanct? Um, the symmetries in it we knew since the time of 
of Isaac Newton, who we both have great affinity for, um, but that we knew since the, you know that there were there were flaws in it and inherent contradictions that needed to be revealed and and corrected by a true but still effective theory like GR. And so, why hold sacrosanct you know these these prints or the Newtonian physics you know all the more so uh, you know if if we aren't really sure that we have a final true theory only an effective theory. What what do you say to to you know kind of those complaints? Um, I have, I agree with Dan that effective theories have been very, very successful. <clears throat> but the reason they've been successful is the, the idea of effective field theories is to identify the symmetries of the system and then construct a class of mathematical models, a general class of mathematical models that are consistent with those symmetries. And, but MOND does not do that. It doesn't, it's not, in some sense, it's not mathematically self-consistent. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't want to... I probably can't get through it to all the details, but with Mond, if you sort of start with over here, and then you go 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 over here, it's like it'll be like a game of telephone, you know? Yeah. You know? Tomorrow is is Super Bowl Sunday, and then by the time it comes back, it's like, you know, know, Franklin Delano Roosevelt is about to be resurrected. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That could be Sunday Super Bowl, I don't know. It doesn't Um, hang together. Yeah, there are issues with, you know, kind of, um, I think, superpositions and linearity and so forth. But let, let's take the opposite tack. Now, let me get your impressions about a highly symmetric theory and, and uh, some would say a super symmetric theory. In other words, you know, particle physics, we, you know, we've been kind of living under this notion that there's some unification that's possible um, and that, you know, there's a theory of everything that lurking uh, perhaps um, for models that that basically ape or replicate you know, very simple symmetries from things like relativistic Klein-Gordon equations and and make those, you know, operate on manifolds with vibrating string. I mean, that's very symmetric, right? And and there are those past guests, you know, Sabina Hassenfelder and Neil Turok and others who argue that we've been led astray by beauty and the symmetry and that it's no longer, you know, in the last 50 years, pursuing that was very fruitful for the preceding 30 years. But, you know, until the time of your, you know, fellow Professor Gelman at Caltech, you know, I don't I don't see that it's been as productive as to warrant, you know, the attention to it versus the attention, the you know, pitiful amount of attention to something like Mond, which I agree is doesn't have those symmetries. So how do you reconcile those two sides, you know, where you're advocative of, of pursuing things that have inherent properties, beauty, symmetry, et cetera. And yet in string theory and supersymmetry, they haven't borne any fruit, at least not yet. I think the issue is that, um, you know, ultimately what we do is physicists, um, as scientists, is construct mathematical models to explain results of experiments and observations. And the simpler the mathematical model, the better. Um, and, but you want that mathematical model to be mathematically self-consistent, and you also want to satisfy certain basic requirements. And the basic requirements, you know, are consistent with the, the symmetries that are either assumed or observed experimentally. Um, and throughout the 20th century, we were lucky because, um, you know, for various historical <clears throat> societal reasons and just, you know, technological advances and, um, and capabilities, we were able to very rapidly uncover, you know, a variety of layers, you know, first going down to the atom and then into the constituents of the atom, the nucleus and the electron, protons and neutrons, the quarks, you know, etc. 
Um, and we were we had a lot of experimental data that guided us and told us what the symmetries were. If you look at the data, and there are the patterns. We had tons of information. You know, when Bohr came across, you know, came up with the, you know, his model for the the hydrogen atom. Um, chemists and physicists have been measuring spectral lines from various types of gases for fifty years, like huge, huge tables of all these numbers, and all of a sudden, you know. With Bohr's model, you start to you start to have some insight on where those numbers came from. You know, Balmer, I think it was the eighteen sixties or something like that when he came up with this formula. Yeah. That was the one paper that he wrote. But right. still, it took you know fifty years from that to you know a model. But then after and that, the things you know were wrong. I mean, the, the Bohr atom is not the true description of the atom, but it's remarkably effective at a plain explaining. Yeah, it, was a, it was a, a phenomenal. It was a, a a simple mathematical model to account for the the you know, some of the observations, and then it led the way, um, you know, with more data, more insights, more measurements to, you know, a more fundamental, mm-hmm. what we believe now is a more fundamental description. But we got yeah. lucky in the 20th century. We had nuclear physics, we had protons and neutrons, we had beta decay, we had all these different nuclei beta decaying, and then hadron spectroscopy, we had neutrons and protons and pions and kaons and rho mesons. It was just like all over the place, and then you know we had accelerators, and we had the W, we had the Z, we had precision tests of um, you know QCD, um, you know we had a uh, what's it called Reggie <coughs> trajectories. Is that what's called? Um, we had um, we had um, you know the parton model, deep inelastic scattering. So there's just a huge amount of information, um, and so our mathematical models were guided. You know we like to think that we're. You know, everything was because of, you know, some type of, like, genius insight. Um, the genius insights were pretty elementary. It's got to be mathematically self-consistent. It's got to account for the observation experiments. We had so much data, and you know, guiding us. But, you know, now we've kind of, you know, I don't know if we hit a wall, but we're getting slower. The, you know, the, the sizes and price tags for accelerators are going to take us to the next level. Keeps getting... You know, mm-hmm. bigger the time scales, price tags are bigger, time scales are longer. And so we just don't have the same kind of guidance from experiment that we did, you know, fifty hundred mm-hmm. years ago. I don't think so, that, you know, that should lead us to abandon the notion of symmetries, just that we just don't know what the what those symmetries are. And so what's right. you know been happening over the past thirty, forty, fifty years is largely guesswork. Mm-hmm. We try guessing some symmetries. Maybe there's a left right symmetric model, maybe there's supersymmetric models. Maybe there's, you know, generalized symmetries. Um, and uh, we see if those, you know, if we can get anything from that. But ultimately, we're limited because we don't have data. So, of course, the, the ultimate of all symmetries, at least in cosmology, is the cosmological principle. And, and lately, you know, the first kind of crisis we're going to talk about um, is the notion of claim at pretty high significance by, by many other, by many people, but in particular, Subir Sarkar and group that Oxford, I think, where he's at, uh, but other ones that, that claim that the cosmological principle should be not overthrown, but needs to be evaluated in the context of the distribution of radio galaxies versus the CMB dipole versus um, other tracers, KSZ, things like that. What, what do you make of that? I mean, first of all, what, what, you know, would you just quit and, and go back to, you know, slinging pizzas in up, uptown Manhattan? Or what would you do if the cosmological principle needs, uh, needs to be jettisoned? I mean, would we just go into like apoplexy or, or, or what? And then second of all, what sort of 
mental energy do you expend on such claims? Um, I actually think it's these kinds of tests are very important and very interesting. Um, I think if we found a violation of the cosmological principle, I wouldn't think of that as the end of the world or the end of the universe. Um, in some sense, um, we might even expect it at some level. Uh, one thing I tell my students is that in, in, in physics, there's no such thing as an integer. There's no such thing as an irrational number. There's no such thing as zero. And there's no such thing as infinity. You know, ultimately, all of our models are approximations to yeah. the reality. To, to reality. And again, the cosmological principle um, is great as a, you know, when it comes to assembling our model of what it, you know, is an essential tool in guiding the development of our current cosmological model. But, um, you know, our notion of inflation is that the universe is not perfectly homogeneous. There are variations from one point to another. And we know that. We've got galaxies, we've got primordial perturbations, cosmic microwave background. And there's no reason to expect that on super horizon distances, which we can't access observationally, that there might be departures from you know, perfect homogeneity and isotropy. Mm-hmm. And so if we did find that the cosmological principle was violated, if we did find there was a preferred orientation in the universe, um, I think that would be great. It would be great because where there's a limit to what we can infer from whatever observations we have, and there might be subtle departures from the things we've always assumed that are going to lead us in that direction. Yeah, I mean, I'm a big fan of these kinds of tests. I think think we should always be testing, you know, all of the assumptions that we've made. We shouldn't hold anything, you know, sacred or holy. Um, So pushing those directions. Let's say, you know, God hands you, you know, uh, a letter and it says... The cosmological principle is not valid, you know, on this scale at, you know, at five sigma, seven sigma, whatever. Um, is, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, that really wouldn't affect. I mean, we, we wouldn't like change the, you know, the B mode power spectra. Uh, you know, for example, it wouldn't it wouldn't undo in the relevant, you know, cosmological epochs, surface of last scattering, even BAO, even epoch of, of you know, lambda domination. Would it, would it really have, like, would you have to change, you know, uh, CAMB or CMB fast as we used to use it? Um, would there be any practical implication on a daily basis other than, like, cosmologists don't know what they're talking about? Uh, you know, um, what would it, how would it affect your life or my life as working cosmologists, if at all? Um, I think if there was, if we did find there was a preferred orientation, mm-hmm. preferred, preferred direction in the universe, um, ultimately it would affect... Um, you know, the calculation of cosmological observables. Um, we do know that any departures from homogeneity or isotropy are very, very small. And so yeah. it wouldn't be like a, a huge, you wouldn't have to throw CAM away completely, but there might, I mean, hopefully, if we're doing things, you know, if we're making progress, sooner or later there would be some type of tweak of CAM or class that we'd have to implement. Um, <clears throat> so, but that would be I mean, a good thing. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, suppose somebody came in and they said, you know, the Earth... You know, Columbus, Christopher Columbus comes in your office one day, okay, in the 1400s, and he says, the earth is round. You're like, get that. <laughs> and then he, like, sails around. He says, okay, watch, I'm going that way. He leaves, and then, you know, six later, years later, he comes back from that side, like, yes, it is round! You demonstrate, I believe it, it's round! And then you go down the hallway to, you know, your theoretical physics group, and you say, look, 
Christopher Columbus has found that the earth is round. He went that way and he came back this way. And then for the next 50 years, people decide the earth is round. And that is, we have the earth is round principle, which is a fundamental principle of, you know, of earth studies. And then somebody winds up taking a trip to the Himalayas. And they see that the Himalayas are really big. And they come back and say, the earth isn't round. <laughs> the earth is not round. It's got bumps in it. Yes. But then you're like, yes, but it's still round. It's not perfectly round, but it's pretty damn close. That's right. And it's like those bumps are interesting. They're interesting. They tell us a lot about the history of the Earth and its evolution and its structure, but it does not eliminate the Earth is round principle. I think that's where we are with the cosmology. We have this cosmological principle: the universe should be homogeneous and isotropic. But we know that it's not perfectly homogeneous. It's not perfectly isotropic. We've supplanted that now with the notion of statistical homogeneity and statistical isotropy, and those um, are very, very good descriptions of the universe, but there's no reason to expect them to be perfect, and if we find violations, that'll be great, because any such violation is not going to overturn the entire structure of cosmological theory, but it'll tell us, it'll give us a, you know, a lot more clues about where the universe came from. Yeah, as uh, another shout out to a famous Isaac, and we already talked about Isaac Newton, but Isaac Asimov said, you know, if you believe the Earth is flat, you're wrong. And if you believe the Earth is a sphere, you're also wrong, but you're less wrong. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's a guiding principle, I think, for what yeah, good science uh, should be. And I want to pivot from from that to the, you know, to maybe moving forward in time from, you know, the Big Bang itself, uh, which... We'll get back to maybe we talk about inflation later on, but um, but there was a kind of a social contagion that went on over the summer uh, where uh, there was a lot of attention paid to an article written by uh, a person who went to Columbia. He might have even been there when you were there, uh, named Eric Lerner, who's a plasma you know, physicist. He's interested in fusion, all sorts of fun things. Not a PhD, not a professor, but he has this you know book from the '90s called "The Big Bang Never Happened." And this article went around based on the Webb telescope data of early spiral galaxy observations that the, you know, he claims there's not enough time since the Big Bang to generate uh, this spiral phenomena and that it's in conflict with other things. And so he believes in a, in a steady state, a static universe, uh, which has myriad problems. And, and I debated him, not, I, I kind of had an asynchronous debate with him. Uh, and I uh, had Garrett Lewis on, and he and I spoke about about this this gentleman's work. But anyway, uh, what do you make of this? If let's say we were to really, and as I think it is true that we don't understand why these galaxies observed by Hubble first in the '90s when he wrote the book the first time, or Webb galaxies which are higher redshift and redder and easier to see with Webb than HST, but still some of them are seen by uh, Hubble. Um, why why is it that you know people? You know, what would that call into question? Or if anything, does it does it cause us to reevaluate Lambda CDM? Uh, does it cause us to reevaluate only and I say only in quotes, you know, galaxy structure formation? What what do you make? Did you hear about these claims? What do you make of them if, if you're hearing about them for the first time? I didn't hear about these claims, but claims like this. Come around all the time. Yeah, I mean, I remember. When I was in graduate school. Postdoc, people were starting to discover galaxies at redshift close to one. 
And then just ruled out the cosmological model, because how can you make a galaxy all the way by redshift? Now there's a cluster of galaxies at redshift of one. And then, like, quasars start appearing, you know, at higher redshift. How can you make the quasars? There's just not enough time for it. There's also this issue of people, there were ages for stars. People had um, stellar um, ages for stars and collaborative clusters that were older, you know, than the age of the universe. How does that happen? That's got a rules, rules out there. But I, don't, I remember, you probably didn't know David Schramm. David Schramm was a larger-than-life figure at the University of Chicago. I met um, him once, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I remember there was one of these debates going on at the time, and, you know, he came to, into class, and he said, you know, <clears throat> the Earth is round. We don't understand how tornadoes form. It's very complicated. We do not have a successful theory of tornadoes that's consistent with around Earth. But that does not mean that the Earth isn't round. It means we don't understand how tornadoes form. It's the same thing going on here. Um, galaxies, especially these high-redshift galaxies, are very complicated. I mean, the high-redshift galaxies are not more complicated, but they're not as well observed, measured, uh, you know, as local galaxies. But they're very complicated objects. Um, I was just at University of Illinois... I was at UIUC last week, and I was talking mm-hmm. to Stuart Shapiro, and I was asking him um, if, what, if he knows how supermassive black holes are formed. So, BC quasars at very high redshift with very large masses. You know, quasars get up to 10 billion solar masses, you know, total 10 solar, and it's not clear how you get so much mass in such a small volume, how you produce such a massive black hole in such a short period of time. But there are ideas about this, how, how this might happen, and it doesn't violate any fundamental physical, you know, theorem. Uh, I don't know how these supermassive black holes are formed. To me, that's the most interesting puzzle, but it doesn't, I've never worried that it invalidates the, our cosmological models. Mm-hmm. No more so than our inability to predict weather patterns invalidates our the Earth is round principle. So um, I wanted uh, to now pivot into more maybe I always say red meat, but I'm going to say um, you know uh, vegan white tofu uh, for my vegan listeners, um, and that's something near and dear to to both of our hearts, and that's the the so called Hubble tension which is one of the more prominent tensions, at least in observational cosmology. And I had on Adam Reese, your, your colleague there. I had on um, John Mather, also a colleague there. Uh, and, you know, we, we discussed some of these, some of these issues. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm tired of the blandishments, Mark. I'm tired of, well, we need more data. I want somebody to come out, tell me what the heck's going on, and, and not postpone or say, you know, if we don't understand it, that would be really exciting. It's like, remember like in the 90s when they said, we're going to build the LHC and or the late, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, we're going to build the LHC and if we don't find the Higgs, that'll be really exciting. Like, if you don't find the Higgs, you're all going to be out of a job, you know, so let, let, let's, let's talk, you know, brass tacks here. What, what's going on and, and who's right with this? I, I know you're a man of, of very strong opinions and you won't weasel or waffle out of this who's right mark tell tell me i need to know really honestly i have no idea what's going on if you had a bet if you had a bet your your new dog your rottweiler i I don't know um first of all can you outline from your perspective you know why this is important first outline it you know 
upper level undergraduate sort of level uh, for my brilliant audience. But what is the Hubble tension? Is it a problem? Um, you know, we have exquisite measurements from two different camps. They don't agree. But what, what are the implications for cosmology? I don't know. I mean, I get asked this all the time. You know, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Talk straight to me. I can handle it, Doc. I don't know. I mean, if I actually knew that there was something wrong with the CMB analysis, they were just, you know, they forgot to like, you know, you know, their C code. They just forgot to like put the right compiler flag on it or something. Or if they just missed a factor of two somewhere. If I knew that, I would have, I would have published it. I would have told the world, and we wouldn't be worrying about it. Same thing with the supernova data. If I like went in there and realized, oh, you were just pointing the telescope at the wrong. <laughs> Cepheid variable, you know, that's the one you're supposed to be looking at. Then we wouldn't be worrying about it. I mean, I really don't know. Um, I mean, CMB analyses, I, I know and understand. Um, and there's nothing wrong with them. A lot of people have looked at them. We've got data from several different telescopes. Um, that data has been analyzed and reanalyzed by a variety of different people and groups. And, you know, the Hubble parameter that we infer from all those measurements is low, 67, 68. And then there are the supernova measurements. And um, I'm kind of in a, probably have a different opinion or view of this than most other people. Um, because when I go to work, I walk past Adam's office in the morning. And I see him, and he's always in front of his screen actually calculating. And <laughs> okay, he's not like a smoking cigars and like having the right. people down the things yeah. like bring him things you go he's actually and you know every couple of days or every couple of weeks on archive there's some paper that appears or someone says well they forgot to take into account the metallicity evolution or they forgot to take into account and then i go past adam's office i'm like hey did you see this paper on archive about the metallicity and i'll say well actually yeah you know the, what they said is correct you have to take into account the metallicity evolution but look we did it, and then he'll show me, you know, I'll go to the screen. There are results. He said, okay, this is the analysis, you know, without it, and this is the analysis with it. And they're right. It does move things down, but it's half a sigma, and it's already in the analysis. We already take that into account. And so, you know, all these, like, you know, uh, things that people, you know, you know, lob at the measurements, he, he, he bats them all away. And so... And he also does the like he does the CMB analysis, which you know I, I couldn't do the supernova analysis. He's a very impressive scientist. Uh, yeah, and it's not just that. The other thing, um, so I told you I wrote this in Rev article on Hubble yeah. tension and dark energy with Adam, and I, I'm familiar with the observations that people have done. But in the process of writing the article and actually, like you know, Adam wrote most of the observational parts, but you know, I want to read through and make sure everything hangs together, and uh, you know, and understand. And also, um, at the same time, um, I'm across the street from the Space Telescope Science Institute. And so yeah. I see Space Telescope, you know, scientists there. And one of the things I've come to appreciate is that, um, you know, there's a huge amount of um, calibration and um, benchmarking and bootstrap tests and engineering and infrastructure yeah. behind HST. And it's the same telescope that's been making all the measurements that they use for these H, for these Hubble parameter measurements, you know, over the past 30 years. And um, 
And so it's not like they're you know, using one telescope to observe this system, another telescope to observe that system, and then trying to figure out how to calibrate this one against that. There's a lot of, you know, it's, it's all calibrated against itself, internally <laughs> calibrated. And so it's not that, you know, someone's just being sloppy or forgetting to do something. This is as careful a measurement, I think, you know, as any that you would find in, in physics. Yeah. And so it's not something that's just easily waved away. And so when people ask me, you know, what's going on? You know, who's wrong? I just, I don't know. It's, you uh, spoke here remotely at least two months ago, uh, UCSD and Berkeley. We have this kind of joint oh, yeah. particle, high energy astroparticle. And you spoke about possible solutions to it. And, and I, um, I brought up my favorite, personal favorite, and I'll, I, I beg your indulgence just to hear the reason why. Of course, you're very familiar with primordial magnetic fields, but uh, that's my preferred explanation for it. Uh, you know, based on work by Levon Pagosian and, and another colleague of his, um, uh, whose name I f- I'm forgetting right now, but I did a video about how their paper basically, you know, could lead to a possible solution of the reconciliation of the tension without costly psychotherapy. And the you know, argument, you know, could be better recapitulated by you. But nevertheless, uh, the reason I like it or philosophically um, attracted to it is that we know magnetic fields exist. And we don't know exactly how magnetic fields the size of a microgauss come to be in the Milky Way galaxy or, you know, nano, you know, nanogauss in the intercluster medium. But we've never detected, correct me if I'm wrong, a truly primordial magnetic field. Uh, and yet we see the, the, the you know, kind of the, the sprouts that must have emerged from some primordial seed. So what, what do you make of the solution via the primordial field since there's, you know, an infinite number of possible, you know, resolutions, theoretical explanations for the Hubble tension. What do you make of that argument that the primordial magnetic field energy plays a role? And then what do you make of your own um, model or <laughs> uh, suggestion uh, that it might be due to evolution of some primordial field or, or so forth? But you'll be better equipped to deal with explanations of both. So first, what are your, you know, kind of straw man and steel man the primordial magnetic field, and then the models that you've worked on. Um, I like the primordial magnetic field idea because, as you say, it's economical. Um, we don't have to completely reinvent fundamental physics or come up with these scalar fields with wacky potentials that we have no idea why they would be there. Um, mm-hmm. The um, only... It's not an issue. I think um, the limitation with the magnetic fields... So the only reason I don't just jump up and say, I think it's got to be magnetic fields, mm-hmm. is that um, it's very difficult to calculate fully the uh, implications of these primordial magnetic fields. Um, it's fundamentally nonlinear. You know, the standard cosmological model, when we describe cosmic microwave background nanostatropies, we got lucky. Um, it's a, a simple system. The fluctuation amplitudes are small, and so we know how to calculate. Um, you know, a priori, it didn't have to be that way if the primordial density perturbation amplitude was more like 10 to the minus 2 instead of 10 to the minus 5, which is as likely from a theoretical point of view as 10 to the minus 5, um, then we would have had a much harder time actually, you know, um, interpreting the data. Um, in primordial magnetic fields, it's, uh, the, the theory is fundamentally nonlinear, and so it's just difficult to calculate. Um, but you know, it's probably, yeah, it probably more, more than, easier, right? With CMB polarization, more, 
Yeah. I think it probably warrants more attention and more effort. Um, but it's just not something that I have yet done. I think it is interesting and important and someone should do it. Maybe I should do it, but I just haven't yet. And I'll um, talk about the model you discussed on the early our, dark uh, energy? our seminar. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, early dark energy, you know, the, the minus is that we introduce this, we have to introduce scalar field with features and parameters that come out of nowhere. Um, the advantage is that we know how to calculate. It's the same type of perturbation theory. And so we can, you know, write down a mathematical model and then evolve it Calculate and you know figure out the the observational implications, and it works. I don't know why it works. I don't. I can't say. Look, there's a. It's it's just what the doctor ordered, and you know this is, you know there's this is exactly what we would have expected. It's right. kind of a cockamamie model, um, and from the point of view of you know what you know your particle theory friends would call a UV completion. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, we don't know where this comes from, but it does work. Um, and I have to say, when we wrote that paper in 2018, I did not expect it to work. I thought we would write, you know, an upper limits paper. You know, we tried to do this, and in this paper, we show that this ridiculous idea, in fact, as you might have expected, doesn't work. You move on with your lives. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, I, you know, it, it turns out that it did work. It was surprising. And I found that you know, interesting that it could work because none of the other solutions work. All the late time solutions, they don't work. Mm -hmm. So to me, this was a model, a ridiculous model, but at least it works. Once you're willing to take this bitter pill, everything else follows. Um, And other people get interested as well. And um, I think until we have anything better or until, you know, somebody comes in and, you know, you know, shows that the, you know, line 683 in the C code that they've been using to analyze the the ACT data, you know, was missing a comma that changes everything. Um, yeah. No, in the meantime, I think it's uh, probably worth exploring or thinking about. But I don't proselytize. I don't think it's the truth. So it turned out to be more interesting. And then we got lucky. I don't really understand it. Then, you know, ACT came out with an analysis two years later. And, you know, the lead author was Colin Hill. And Colin is like, really knows what he's doing with data and is unbiased. You know, he had written several earlier papers analyzing large-scale structure, showing that it was disfavored early dark energy. And then he was the first author on this ACT collaboration paper where they looked at the data fully objectively without any intended consequence, without any biases, and they found that the ACT data was um, more consistent with early dark energy than Lambda CDM. Which I don't, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainties and issues, you know, that in some ways, it's something that, you know, that's a very preliminary analysis. I don't think it's at all the last word. It was done on a fraction of the ACT data. It was done fairly early on. And as you know, um, whenever you do a CMB experiment, you don't just get straight to the science results. You discover the science simultaneously with the instrument. That's and right. so. John's um, a very valued collaborator on Simon's Observatory, and, and of course he'll be uh, having a lot more to say when our instrument gets first light next year uh, over there in the Atacama Desert. Pivoting back to where we began with broken symmetries, uh, I mentioned, you know, if not for the broken symmetry between matter and antimatter, you know, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation, and yet it's a very tiny asymmetry, but it's, you know, hard to think of something more impactful 
and I was reading a, a paper, which, you know, I, I remember when it came out because I remember the events by the alpha uh, magnetic spectrometer on the space station back uh, five, six years ago. And then remember the paper that came out that Vivian uh, Poulin wrote with, with you and, and several others, including Joe Sill. Uh, and that was entitled, um, you know, where do these uh, anti-helium events come from? So uh, we won't talk so much about the uh, results, although I'm not sure that they did stand up to, you know, further reanalysis or were they confirmed. Uh, can you first say something about that? And then can you talk about these anti-helium and anti-matter clouds uh, that are existent in this model uh, and how they could provide the source of some of these uh, of these particles that seem to be observed at least by the AMS on the ISS. So first of all, are, are these measurements still, you know, uh, are they still credible or, or do we have further, you know, disconfirmation about them? Yeah. You didn't warn me that you were going to ask me about this. Sorry. <laughs> your paper, you're responsible for anything you put your name on. No, this is a cool paper. It's, it's about anti-clouds. Yeah. 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 I, rem I know the paper. I remember the paper. I haven't kept up though with it. That's the thing. Um, so when we wrote that paper, the, the anti-helium results were not yet refereed. Um, there were sort of talks, and it was understood that it was preliminary. Mm -hmm. um, but even though it was preliminary, there were certain interesting things about it that um, were unusual and caught our eye. Um, so I don't really know what the status of that is. Mm -hmm. um, I have not heard a lot more. Um, the anti-clouds were kind of a crazy idea. Um, and I don't think that you know, when I looked at that paper and that model, I didn't necessarily put it forward as a model of what I think is actually going on, but um, sort of as a model of how crazy things would have to get if this result holds up. Ah, right. So, I mean, how, how much do we, because this I want to pivot to the extremely early universe and Sakharov conditions and whatnot. So um, how do you, you know, kind of, get your attention drawn to an anomaly or a crisis, um, you know, in, in, in cosmology versus particle physics. And, you know, how much progress could we make on the, you know, baryon antibaryon asymmetry problem from pure cosmological, you know, insights, observations, data, uh, pure theory, you know, how, how much uh, of a concern is it that, you know, I mean, the, the critic will say, well, you have this edifice built on sand You've got all this, you know, uh, or anti-sand. <laughs> you've, you've got all these dark forces and fields. You, you know, 95% of the universe is completely alien to us if they exist at all. Some people say, like, Milgram, it doesn't exist. Um, and even people say that dark energy doesn't exist. I think Sarkar had, had some papers about this. Uh, these, you know, prominent people. So uh, what do you say to people that, like, how can you predict, you know, that we'll see fluctuations in the CMB from inflationary, you know, gravitational waves if you don't even know why there's matter versus antimatter in the universe, uh, to what extent do well, that think, type of tension keep you up at night? I think there are, there are two things that, that I think that interest me. So one of them is that in cosmology and particle physics, there are tons of anomalies. Just tons. And any given day, there's like Tons of measurements that disagree with what we would have expected based on the standard model or our modeling of astrophysical systems. Um, and then there are tons of theorists thinking about things. But for some reason, um, the vast majority of theorists tend to gravitate or cluster around a very narrow range of anomalies. And um, 
I think to a large extent, cosmologists are bosons. And if somebody's thinking about the Hubble tension, they will also think about the Hubble tension. They're not going to think, okay, there's 16 people thinking about the Hubble tension. That's good. That's it's a very important tension. We don't understand it. Someone should be thinking about it. But then over here, there's this other tension. And maybe we should have, you know, eight or nine or 10 people thinking about that. And then, you know, there should be, you know, in, if this was a business, you know, we would have a manager at the top and says, okay, there's this tension, there's this tension, there's this tension. Okay, Kami Kasky, you choose five people to be on your team. You think about this tension. Daldaryaga, we got this tension over here. Pick five of your friends, go think about that. Kazowski, we need you guys in Pittsburgh to be looking about this tension. But it doesn't work that way. Everybody decides what they're going to do, and everybody winds up focusing on a very narrow range of um, problems. Mm. Um, then there's the question, you know, what, when do I choose? You know, mm -hmm. How do I choose what to work on? I don't really know, but I think, um, I think, you know, to some approximation, I have some students and postdocs and I have collaborators elsewhere, and we sit around and we brainstorm, we talk about things, and we read papers, and uh, occasionally, you know, I mean, often we'll, you know, talk about some anomaly that appeared in the data. We'll try to understand it, try to figure out, you know, is there any simple, obvious explanation, you know, in the analysis or in the interpretation? And, you know, most of the time we'll conclude, yeah, it's an anomaly. We don't understand what's going on. And that's it. We don't have anything else to say. But sometimes um, we'll see something like that and we'll actually have something to say. Um, so one example is there's a, there's a paper that showed up almost a year ago an archive by Mark Postman and Todd Lauer and the New Horizons team. Right. And um, it was a very, you know, the style of the paper was very astronomical. It looked like, you know, an AppJ abstract. The language was very um, astronomical. And so I, I think it just passed a lot of people by. But I know Mark Postman because he's at Space Telescope Science Institute, and I see him all the time. And so I read you know, through it. And as it turns out, they did this incredible measurement. So you know about New Horizons. Yeah, that Pluto space. Yeah. So I took a picture of Pluto and Karen, and it was like incredible, absolutely amazing that something that humans built got that close to Pluto and took such detailed pictures of Pluto and Charon less than a lifetime after Pluto was discovered. <laughs> yeah. And less than a human lifetime. years after Pluto. launch, right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then, but it didn't have any brakes in it, right? They just sent it out there, and you know, it sailed past Pluto, <laughs> take a bunch of pictures. <laughs> yeah, but we can't. But then it kept sailing on, and then a couple years later, it took a picture of that asked that Kuiper Belt object, peanut shaped thing. Mm -hmm. But it's still out there, and it's moving. You know, it's going for it's like seventy AU from the sun. So it turns out that um, nobody has ever been able to measure the cosmic optical background. So you look at the sky. And it's dark. Nobody's actually ever been able to measure how bright the sky actually is in optical. We know in radio frequency. That's the cosmic microwave background. Nobody's ever been able to measure the cosmic optical background because there's so much scattered light from the sun. So even HST and JWST, they're, they're above the Earth's atmosphere, but they're still, you know, they can't do this measurement because they're still in the solar system. Right. And there's a lot of scattered light from the sun. So this, you know... 
New Horizons, the camera was not that sophisticated. It wasn't the greatest thing that camera that anybody's ever built. It's not a JWST camera. But it was out there, 70 AU from the sun, where the scatter light from the sun is reduced by four orders of magnitude. And so Mark Postman and Todd Lauer went to the New Horizons people like, just point it at nowhere. You're doing nothing else with it. It's going to yeah, be a while until you find another Kuiper Belt object. Just point it at nothing and take a picture and see what happens. And so they did that. And they measured the cosmic optical background. They got the first high signal-to-noise measurement of the cosmic optical background. And the, the interesting thing was that um, Mark Postman and Todd Lauer, um, you know, Mark Postman was involved in the original Hubble Deep Field. Mm. He knows more, as much about galaxy populations um, at high redshift, at low redshift, as anybody. Yeah. And so they had an expectation of what the cosmic optical background would be due to the integrated light from all the unresolved galaxies that we know to be out there. And it turns out that the cosmic optical background they measured was twice what they expected from all the galaxies, known galaxy populations in the universe. So for every photon that comes from some star that we know about somewhere, there's another photon coming from God knows where. <laughs> so the reason, so we wound up writing a paper, and the reason we wrote a paper is that an obvious, you know, exotic physics explanation is um, decay of an axion particle. Two photon decay of an axion. And um, my group had been working on this um, new type of cosmological measurement called line intensity mapping. Mm -hmm. And um, JPL, your, your friends, um, you know, Jamie Bach. Jamie Bach, yeah. Yeah, Jamie's got this project called Spherix, which is going to be launching, you know, the next year or two. And it's going to do line intensity mapping. And we realized that if that cosmic optical background excess is, in fact, due to decay um, of an exotic particle, it's going to show up in Spherex um, at, you know, the many thousands of sigma level. So Spherex is just, it's like going to be like, a, like taking candy from a baby for Spherex mm -hmm. to, you know, verify or disprove this hypothesis. So that's the only idea we had. The idea that it might be due to two photons to give an action that is not at all profound. That would be an embarrassing paper to write, but we wrote the paper because we were able to, we knew that this idea would be tested. It was a great target for Spherex. Yeah. Um, and, and as far as the Hubble tension goes, I mean, I've been, I, I, I heard about it a lot because, you know, Adam's at, um, and, and Chuck is right down there next to him. Yeah. Um, I'd hear, you know, think about, hear about it a lot and, um, in 2016, I wrote this paper with Tom V. Carwell, who's a graduate student. The basic idea behind early dark energy, again, is not that profound, or it's pretty simple and obvious. So we did write a simple paper about that in 2016, but it took two more years um, to actually do the complete analysis um, to, to figure out whether this idea could be made to work. Would that then have, you know, we, we as you know, look for a time-dependent, um, but not but spatially isotropic, cosmic birefringence, polarization rotation of E-modes or grad modes into curl modes, uh, as I will always call them. And uh, we look for a time to put so far. We haven't seen that. Bicep hasn't seen them uh, and and so forth. Would this signal, I mean, is there any con kind of neutral constraint or concomitant, you know, um, limit that could be put on, let's say you accept these at face value from uh, from New Horizons. Would that give any kind of hope for you to write a paper called the the Axion Pursuers Guide or something like that. I 
I don't think we need to write that paper because um, axions have just become the the preferred um, you know workhorse for theorists thinking about exotic new physics and dark matter and dark energy and early dark energy. Um, so I don't think I'd be the person to write that. I've written some papers that have axions in them, but I, I'm a bit player in the whole. All right, all right. Well, I had on, uh, you know, not too long ago, um, it was David, David Chalmers, who's, I think, well, he's in New York. I think he's at NYU, actually. He's not at Columbia. But, but anyway, or maybe he's at Columbia. I forget. But the point is, he's Australian. He's originally from Australia. I said, you know, you're well known uh, for all these, you know, the hard problem of consciousness, you know. And, you know, when I have ACDC, also from Australia, on the Into the Impossible podcast, I can't not ask them to play You Shook Me All Night Long. It's just, it's just. It's not fair to them, to their oeuvre. Um, so I want to ask you, you know, as the, really the, the pioneer in, in a lot of these ways of thinking and the detectability of inflation um, or its constraint, you know, what is the status of inflation from Mark Kamienkowski's perspective? 30 years, you know, after we met or, uh, you know, we, you really were, were initiating a whole field, which would become my, you know, my source of, of where my bread gets buttered. What what do you view as the status of inflation? Is it is it stronger than ever? What's what's the what what kind of grade would you give to inflation at this point? And um, what what kind of perspectives do you have for prospects for what we're going to do in the future? Um, I have to say that I mean the basic status of inflation, um, the basic idea I think is the same as it was thirty forty years ago. Um. There have been a lot of um, theoretical developments that are interesting. Um, a lot of them done by people like Dan Green, um, but also Leonardo Senatore, Matias Saldariaga, um, Daniel Bauman. There's been this whole um, Jared Kaplan, Ian Fitzpatrick. Um, there was a, you know, starting about 15 years ago, there were a slew of papers on effective field theory descriptions of inflation. Um, which I think are important because they put inflation model building on that um, level of mathematical self-consistency um, symmetries built in that I think is you know one of the things we're supposed to be doing in theoretical physics. In terms of observation experiment, I have to say that inflation is doing far better, I think, than I ever would have expected 30 years ago. So it's almost 30 years ago that I started writing papers on CMB tests of inflation. And, you know, I was a postdoc and an assistant professor, and I was just trying to write papers that made me seem clever so that I'd get a job and then get tenure. And, um, and I remember once, you know, we were, I was giving a talk about cosmological parameter determination with the CMB. This was, you know, 1995. And it was before WMAP was selected, but they were proposing it. It was MAP at that time. And I remember talking to David Wilkinson, who was the W from it. And he said, you shouldn't be so... And I was, you know, we wrote these papers and we're thinking, in the best case, in the best case, if they get all the money in the world, and they have genius instrument builders, and the thing doesn't blow up on the launch pad, and it makes it, you know, they get the funding and they make it normal. In the best case, they should be able to make... This measurement. I remember David Wilkinson came up to me afterwards. He's like, it's really not that difficult. 
<laughs> he's like, you know, it's not the, we can do this. And I was like, really? Because, you know, Kobe, we were, we were coming off of Kobe. And, you know, Kobe took more than 20 years from conception to launch. And so and I was thinking, in the in best case scenario, yeah. we have an experiment like the, the one, the, what we had in mind is actually less than what MAP turned out to be after a few years of observation. And I had in my mind this would take another 20 years, you know, before this happened. But as it turned out, you know, the first results, the first, you know, results on um, the, the, you know, the first acoustic peaks in the CMB power spectrum came from Boomerang in spring of 2000. And then a year later, there was, you know, further measurements from DAISY um, that lined up right on top of each other. And it just... It was astoundingly good. We had no idea if there would be reionization. You know, there was a really good chance that it would all be completely washed out by reionization. And we always thought, you know, maybe for some reason the universe could get reionized into it. But probably, you know, it's important a measurement to make just in case. Let's do it. Probably I'm not going to see anything. Um, you know, but it turned out to be, the experiment turned out to be much better than I thought. And the agreement of the, the, the theory with the model is, again, much better than I ever expected. You know, we see a yeah. power law over three decades. We see a spectral index, which is close to, but not exactly equal to one. You know, if it was exactly equal to one, suppose, you know, it was 2023, we had Planck, we had WMAP, we had ACT, we had SPT, and all the data said that N sub S is equal to 1.00 plus or minus 0.01. I don't know if we would still be thinking about inflation. We just say, well, you know, that's a scale of various spectrum. That's what you expect. But inflation right. is a physical model, and it predicts that it's not exactly equal to 1. It predicts that it's close to 1, but not exactly equal to 1. So that, you know, when that started emerging, to me, that was remarkable. Uh, and now we have measurements of the mass distribution from lensing. Again, we were writing papers about this years ago. But, you know, when it actually happened, it was spectacular. I think the status of inflation is that, the, you know, it was a great idea 30 years ago, one that should have been taken seriously 30 years ago. But I think it's, uh, you know, it's harder to disregard it, much, much harder to disregard it now than it was yeah. 30 years ago. Well, Mark, uh, you've been so generous with your time and and uh, your attention uh, all these many years to little old me. I can't resist to do what I do with all my guests that honor me by coming on the podcast and ask you just two existential questions. We, we have time for two of my patented fantastic final four. And, and the first one I'm going to ask you about, uh, they're both related to Sir Arthur C. Clarke. And the first one has to do with his famous statement that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And the way I like to kind of put a spin on it, the Keating spin on it, is to ask you what discovery in all of science, maybe just in your local neck of the woods of science, would you most want to kind of trumpet to the universe and something that will endure as a byproduct of the magic of, of science and technology that human beings or you have created? and sort of uh, give us a little swagger for all humankind. Swagger for all humankind from, for science. From science, yeah. So I'll, I'll give you a minute to think, but Feynman, who is Sean Carroll's uh, previous office uh, occupant at Caltech, he, he said the, 
most astonishing thing in the, in the shortest, fewest amount of words is the atomic hypothesis. So that uh, everything's made of atoms. So I wonder from your perspective, what, what is the most astonishing thing about the, that humans have discovered about the universe, about science, anything? I don't know. I think this cosmological model that we have is pretty remarkable. Um, I think that's a confluence of a number of things, um, you know, ideas and theory, but also the technology that allows us to make the measurements. But it's also a product of the fact that the universe has cooperated. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, as I said, the, the fluctuation amplitude is small, which means that we can treat the perturbations with simple calculations. Um, and, you know, the universe is very, very close to isotropic and homogeneous. And turns out it's a very simple universe. You would have never, you know, if someone 150 years ago told you that, look, in the next 150 years, people are going to understand the largest scale structure of the universe. You would have expected that the thing would have turned out to be so simple. <laughs> That's right. Think, um, so we got lucky, you know, with the... the with the cooperation, you know, through collaboration of theory, technological advancements, you know, really bold and talented experimentalists like, you know, you and people that you work with and have worked with, um, and the cooperation of the universe, we assemble this incredible model so we can, you know, say with some confidence what was going on, you know, just a few mm-hmm. seconds after the Big Bang. Yeah. Um, no, it's not the standard model of elementary particle theory. Pretty remarkable. That's a to me. I've been teaching quantum field theory for a couple of years now, and every year I've tried something a little bit different so that I keep learning. And mm-hmm. it's a it's a the mathematical structure of quantum field theory is absolutely remarkable. Um, so, Mark, with that, I want to ask one final question, also kind of uh, provoked by Sir Arthur C. Clarke. He said a lot of fun things that are really enjoyable to whip out at faculty meetings, such as for every expert, there's an equal and opposite expert. Uh, But one of his quips I want to lay on you right now is our final question, then we'll wrap up. Uh, And that is when a elderly but distinguished scientist says something is possible, he or she is most likely right. But when he or she says something is impossible, they're most likely wrong. Now, I'm not calling you elderly and you're only a couple of years older than me, I think. Uh, but you're distinguished. And I want to ask you, in that context, what have you changed your mind about? What have you been wrong about, if anything? Oh, I've been wrong about lots. It's kind of interesting. Uh, I think, you know, having... Let's see, I've been, I started as a professor 28 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had certain notions about how things work and how scientists work um, that I now realize are completely wrong. Um, I had notions about how like graduate students should be trained 30 years ago, mm-hmm. that are, and my notions about how they should be trained now are completely different. Um, my no, notions wait, give about, me an, like, a quick example. G- give me a quick example. How, how have you changed? Uh, what's something you changed with regard to graduate um, education? I think I was, uh, you know, when I first started at Columbia, I was a, a probably real, real hard ass about all the classes that students need to take and all the mm-hmm. things, technical things that they need to master before they can really be successful in research. And I mm-hmm. still think that all those technical skills and mastery are important, 
but I now my you know now I think that the most important thing that graduate students do is get involved in research as soon as they get into graduate school. I mean, it happens with anybody who's ever had a graduate student. You have a graduate student, they come in, the first day they don't know anything. They don't know why the sky is blue, they don't know why the grass is green, they don't know, you know, where to find their office, they don't know anything. They can't, they don't, you know, how to do, not to calculate anything. Um, and, you know, within three years, they're like, you're, you're like sitting across the desk for them, or like, you know, talking about what they're working on, and you realize that they're like, explaining things to you that you never thought about and it doesn't happen because yeah. you're like sitting there like giving them lectures and saying do this problem do this problem do this problem then come back and show me your solutions i don't do that but uh yeah the most important it's like you know teaching people to swim you know when i was a kid yeah. take swimming lessons we sit at the they have a stand this side of the pool and perfect our strokes you know they give us free feedback yeah that's good that's good that's how you do it and I perfect the stroke, and then I get in the water, and it was <laughs> completely worthless. <laughs> That's right. And uh, theory and practice are very different. Well, Mark, I, I want to thank you so much personally uh, for being such a, a just a mentor, a friend. I, I always think, you know, when I hear some crazy idea, what would Mark think? And and it's not always the sober voice of reason that you often pr- provided me in my career, but it was the encouragement to do things like come up with, you know, how we would actually do bicep and, and, and see it through to, to fruition. And now to see 22 years later, you know, bicep array is still operating at the South pole and we have a hundred and, you know, $10 million project called the Simons observatory, which features three, you know, basic uh, direct descendants of bicep type uh, ideas, which trace themselves back to your paper with uh, your colleagues, Andrew Jaffe, good friend and Lemon Wang. Uh, but that's just one of many ways you've influenced me personally you don't have to respond. You don't have to rebut this. Uh, but I want to thank you on behalf of my audience and, and, and me in particular. And I hope we'll get to see each other soon out there in balmy Baltimore or out here in su- sunny San Diego. Well, thanks to you for actually making bicep happen, for making polar bear happen, for making Simon's observatory happen. Uh, as I said, you know, science and physics is mathematical models for experiment results of experiments and observations and so there's really no point to anything that i would ever do without all the things that you and your colleagues are doing oh thank you mark have a great day i'm not just saying that i'm not just saying that (laughs) i know i know you're not you're not uh the sunshine and roses type uh mark thanks again any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic Thank you for listening to Into the Impossible. Keep in touch by signing up for Professor Keating's Monday Magic email at briankeating.com slash list. And if you've got a .edu domain, we'll send you a cosmological artifact of your own in the form of an authentic meteorite fragment. Thanks to all our viewers and listeners for helping us break the 100,000 subscriber mark on YouTube. Please keep it growing by following and subscribing. And remember, always be curious. Thank you.